The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Several months ago, I asked our deacons if they thought that I should change the way that I preach. The ones that said yes are no longer deacons, of course, but um, but I did ask them if I should change the way that I preach, and I had a purpose in asking that question, and um, it has to do with my methodology. Uh, some people don't like to hear uh, all the background information of passages. They want to get right to it, tell us what that is, and give us a nice little application for our, our life, what well, we can use this afternoon. And that's never been actually my method. Uh, rather, I like to take the scriptures and break them down and give you that background information. And today, that's what I want to do. I want to talk to you about the background uh, of questions that were asked in Matthew chapter 24. And so I'd like you to turn there if you would. And we're going to look at the beginning of this chapter. And I want to discuss a topic that most people, including non-Christians, most people are interested in this, and that's about the end of the world. What will it be like at the end of the world, and what are the events that lead up to the end of the world? And most people are interested in that. Uh, there are many different ideas about it, and uh, really the only one that affects you is the one that's right, and the one that was taught by the one who will end the world. And that's what we want to talk about as we look at Matthew chapter 24 in these next few weeks. Now here in this text, Jesus was prompted by questions from his disciples. And he took time to explain what would happen after he died. Uh, soon he was going away. And for their expectations to be correct, he had to correct their thinking on some issues. And of course, we have to believe that it was God who put this into the hearts of these men to ask these questions, because if they hadn't, then we would still be here today wondering the very same things that they wondered. And so we have here in the Scriptures Jesus' explanation about what will happen at the end, and we wouldn't know these things except Jesus had explained them. Now, I'd like for us to look at the first three verses of this chapter, and again, we're going to be talking about background information today that helps us to understand why Jesus went into these other things that he speaks about in the rest of the chapter. So if you look at Matthew 24, and I'll just let you remain seated because we're just going to read three verses here. Matthew 24, verse number 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things? Verily, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? Father, thank you for your word. Help us today as we look into this passage and give us some understanding of the background issues that are involved as the disciples ask the questions about the end of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now where I'd like to start today is 
really, with the message that I preached three weeks ago. And that message was uh, an introduction to the 24th chapter and the importance of studying about the end time. So that's number one on your listening sheet. And this part is just a little bit of a review of that sermon three weeks ago. That is the importance of the study. Now, the study of the end times, I'll put this on the screen for you again. Uh, This study, the theological term for it, is called eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. And this is a word that comes from the Greek eschatos, which means last. For example, in 2 Timothy 3, verse number 1, Paul said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And last there is the word eschatos, and so we term the study of last things or the study of the end times eschatology. Now the Bible gives us some very distinct reasons why we should study this subject. God says that we're going to be blessed by it. In fact, the Apostle John in the Revelation in the very first chapter said that the person who reads Revelation and studies the prophecies that are in that book will indeed be blessed. Now, there are many people that are afraid of Revelation. They're afraid they're not going to be able to understand it. But God says, take the time to study it, because if you do, you will be blessed. The Bible also says that we should study the subject of end times because we'll receive hope from it. There are a lot of good things that are going to happen when, uh, to God's people when Christ comes to begin his kingdom. And when he does, the world is going to be a much different place. The scripture says that Christ will come to reign in peace and in righteousness and the whole world will rejoice with the abundant provision that God has for his kingdom in that time. Now, of course, there's much to fear about the coming of Christ. There's fear for unbelievers. The coming of Christ is for believers and not for unbelievers. And so there aren't any expectations that unbelievers are going to be blessed by the study of end times prophecy. Now, they could be blessed, that is, if God should strike fear into their hearts because of it, and they would come to the Lord in repentance and faith and realizing that the only hope that they have is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's good for us to study about the end times because it'll make us better people. It'll make us different people. I mean, if we truly do have the hope in us that that Christ could return at any time, that'll give us a different approach to our life. It will cause us to live our lives in a much different way. We will live to be like Christ. And as the Apostle John said, we'll live so as not to be ashamed when Christ comes. And then finally in that last message, we talked about how important this study is because the end times, it will be a time that's filled with deception. There are going to be many deceivers in the last times. There will be people that will come along that say that they can predict the coming of Christ, and they can tell you the exact hour and the day that he will come. And so there are people that have set dates for the coming of Christ. Of course, those dates have all been wrong, but there are people that followed them and they were deceived by them. And as we go into the next section, Jesus will actually say that there will be false messiahs and there'll be false prophets who will come and they'll prophesy, they'll say things in his name. And we're told to study these things so that we can identify those people and see where they're wrong and we won't be taken in by their lies. So it's good to spend time on this. It's important that we do. And this is the very reason that Jesus took two chapters to explain the disciples' questions. And in fact, these, these are the longest answers that he gave to any 
of the disciples' questions when he talked to them about the end times. Well, we need to step a little bit further into this passage today, and our, our study today is going to deal mostly with misunderstandings. That is, the misunderstandings of the apostles. So number two on your listening sheet today is the impression of the disciples. And the disciples were no different from us. They were interested in the subject. They also wanted to know, when will the end come? They wanted to know about God's kingdom, and they were especially interested in the end after what Jesus said to the religious leaders in chapter 23. And in that previous section, he said that the leaders of Israel had filled up the cup of God's wrath. And he said that judgment of God is about to fall. And he said that their religious system, judgment's going to be fall, it's going to pour, be poured out on them. In verse 38 of that chapter, he said that their house would be left desolate. And there he was referring to the temple, and the statement that he made was actually pregnant with meaning because it meant more than just the temple. It meant that the whole religious system of the Jews would come crashing down. Now, the disciples didn't understand all of that, but they, but they did have their own version of what would happen in the end times. They, they had this uh, eschatological system that they had studied for years. They studied the Old Testament and... They looked at what the Word of God had to say there, and they looked at Jewish commentaries. And the Jews had commentaries on Scripture, just like we have commentaries today. And unfortunately, they were wrong about what was going to happen at the end. They were very confused about it. So the disciples couldn't understand how that what Jesus had just said could fit into their preconceived ideas of what would happen at the end. And so they were trying to make all of this work in their minds, but there were very serious flaws in their thinking that Jesus had to correct. Now let's take a look at this for a few minutes. What were their impressions of the end times? Well, first of all, I think that I need to explain a little bit about what they thought concerning the temple. And the temple was the most important part of Jewish worship. And if you're going to talk about worship to the Jews, and you're going to talk about anything religious to the Jews, you can be sure that in the conversation will come up the subject of the temple. The temple is the all-important thing in Jewish worship. And so Jesus wanted to bring them to the realization of the destruction of the temple. And so he's there talking about the temple to begin with. And when Jesus said that their house would be left desolate, he meant this beautiful structure of the temple, the most revered place of worship, would soon be torn down. Now I want you to get the picture. Picture the scene here. In the beginning of the chapter, it says that Jesus left the temple. And all of the things that took place in chapters 22 and 23 were at the temple. And when Jesus had finished speaking there, he left the temple and he went out of the city and he had the disciples in tow. So they left the city and they went across the Kidron Valley and they began the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And when they were at a much higher place, they turned around and they looked at the city of Jerusalem. And I can tell you that is a beautiful sight. It's a very beautiful sight because there on the Mount of Olives, you can look down and in one view, you can take in almost the entire scope of the city. Now today what you see as you look down is you see the, uh, the wall of the city, the eastern wall and the eastern gate that is sealed up. 
And the most prominent feature that you're looking down upon is the raised platform that's called the Temple Mount. And unfortunately today, on the Temple Mount, there is a mosque called the Dome of the Rock that sits there. At Passover time this year, uh, just a month or so ago, uh, there were some Jewish men that were arrested for going up to the Temple Mount where they tried to sacrifice a goat. Now, Jews are not allowed on the Temple Mount because Muslims control that. And there on the Temple Mount, you have two mosques, the Mosque of Al-Aqsa and also the Dome of the Rock. And those things are standing there in place of the Jewish temple. But as Jesus and the disciples looked down on that site, they saw a much different view. They would have seen something like this, this picture that we, that we have here, which is a model of the time uh, of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And they would have seen the Temple Mount that appears in this way. And most prominent to them would have been the massive buildings that were there in the temple complex. And they would see the gold of the temple glistening in the sunlight. And so the disciples wanted to discuss the temple and how magnificent that it was. And this was actually the second temple that was built on the site. The original temple was built by Solomon, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians about five centuries before Christ came. And uh, near the end of the, or at the end of the Babylonian captivity and at the end of the Old Testament, there was a second temple that was built. And that was about 400 years before Christ came. And the temple, that second temple, wasn't very much to look at. When it was built, there were some of the people that remembered what the temple that Solomon had built was like, how magnificent that it was. And the Bible says that they wept when they saw that second temple. They wept because it was nothing like the one that Solomon had built. And that's because the people were poor at that time. They didn't have the wealth of resources that Solomon had. And as you know, Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. And he displayed that wealth by putting gold and all different sorts of things in the temple that he built. And so when the people looked at that second temple, their hearts were broken because their second temple was nothing like the one that Solomon built. Well, the temple existed in that state until shortly before the time that Jesus was born. And that was when Herod the Great began a massive building project in which he started to build on the Temple Mount and actually converted it into a fortress. And what you see behind me there in that picture is an idea of what he'd done. There on one corner of it, you can see the fortress of Antonia. And that is where the Apostle Paul was taken in and captured in, uh, in the book of Acts. But that whole area contained these massive buildings, and Herod had spent 46 years actually building the temple itself. And that temple area, the whole area of it was so huge that it was almost beyond belief. Some people have said that that temple and the Temple Mount was one of the wonders of the world. There were massive stones that were used in the building, and the stones were so large that it almost defies imagination that in those times, they could actually put those stones and build up that temple mount. Now, some of those stones were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, and 12 feet wide. And I did some calculations on that, and that would make one of those stones weigh about 470 tons per stone. And those stones were put in place from the bottom of the temple wall surrounding the wall surrounding the temple mount from the bottom of there all the way to the top that in some places it was two to three hundred feet high 
They'd moved those massive stones into place. Now, I'll add to that that some of those stones that were at the bottom of that retaining wall are still there today. And that's where the Jews go today to the western wall where they pray in front of that western wall. And that's actually part of the retaining wall that was set up by Herod the Great when he built up the Temple Mount. So here's this huge temple that the disciples are looking down on. Herod expanded the second temple so that it was remarked that anyone that had not seen this temple had not actually seen a fine building. So here were Jesus and the disciples looking down on that structure, and then Jesus made this unbelievable statement in verse number 2. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now going back to that first temple of the Old Testament that Solomon built, the Jews thought it would never be destroyed. In fact, when the Babylonians came, there were some of the Jews that took refuge in the temple. They hid out there because they thought, surely God's not going to allow the temple to be destroyed. Now looking at the second temple and all the improvements that Herod had made and how massive that it was, the disciples were simply incredulous that this temple could be destroyed. And they reflected the same ideas that the leaders of Israel had when they thought that Jesus was referring to the temple when he made a particular statement in John chapter 2. And there it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now that temple construction was going on for 46 years. The rest of the complex took much longer. It was still going on at the time that Jerusalem was destroyed later. And so with this construction, this gargantuan building project, they had to wonder who could tear this down. And Jesus made that statement, there shall not, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And Jesus was right about that, and that's because he is a prophet. He is the omniscient God, and he was right about it. And in AD 70, what is that, 30, 47 years after, about after the crucifixion, that temple was destroyed. And it's kind of interesting about how and why that happened. You see, the Roman general Titus didn't really have intentions of tearing the, the uh, temple down. For him, it was a conversion project. What he really wanted to do was to take the temple and to convert it into a heathen temple, one that Rome could use to worship their gods. And the Romans did come there, and they did sacrifice, but there wasn't going to be any conversion. Uh, as much as Titus wanted the temple to destroy, and as much as the Jews wanted to preserve the temple, God said, this place is coming down, and there was nobody going to stop that. Nobody stops what God has determined. And so when Rome that laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, trying to put down a Jewish revolt, there were fires that broke out in the city, and the gold that was in the temple began to melt. Now, you see, there was a lot of gold there. Uh, if you go back to the statement that Jesus made in chapter 21, he went into the temple, and do you remember that he said to them, you have made this house, or made the temple here, you have made it a den of thieves. And the reason he said that was because the Sadducees had put in this system of selling sacrificial animals, and through that, through the thousands, 
even millions of sacrificial animals that were sold, they had amassed a fortune and they kept that in the temple. And there, at the time that it was destroyed, there was about a hundred million dollars worth that was in the temple. And so when those fires got started, the gold began to melt and it started to filter down, to run down between the cracks that were in the stones and the, and the seams that were, the mortar joints that were in the stones. And the soldiers came and they were greedy and they were eager to get at that gold. And so what they did, they began to pry up the stones of the temple and they began to throw them over the wall. Now today, you can stand down there and you can see the pavement that's broken where those stones were thrown down. Now, folks, this was really astonishing. How could Jesus know this? Uh, how could he know that despite the best efforts of the Roman government to keep that temple there and to convert it into a heathen temple, how could it be that the, despite the best efforts of the Jews to preserve it, how did he know that place would come down? And how did he know that such a thing as gold melting there would be the cause of the temple being torn up? Well, you just have to stand back and you have to consider what God can do. There isn't any building that will stand that God wants torn down. Nothing is going to last that God doesn't want to last. And so Jesus was bringing them to the realization of what would happen. This magnificent temple would be destroyed. Now, before I go further, I do need to explain to you that there are two schools of thought about this. There are some who say that the destruction of the temple was not in the disciples' eschatological plan. They didn't believe that this could ever happen. But then there are others that say, no, Herod was the one who built this temple, and Herod was not a Jew. And so it kind of stuck in their crawl that an Idumean, a man who's not a Jew, had actually built a temple for God. Well, if that was their position, then you can imagine that the destruction of the temple wasn't bad news. It would have been very good news because it filled them with hope. In their thinking, destruction of the temple would fit into the plan and that would mean that Jesus was now ready to begin the kingdom. And so they, 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 they would prompt their question, an excited, anticipatory question, when will these things be? And they expected that it would happen very soon. Now secondly, what is their impression of eschatology? Well, next is the anticipation of the end of oppression. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied on many occasions that there was a golden age that was coming for the Jews. Uh, in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, uh, the, the prophets told the people that this would come to an end, that it would be all over and Israel would be free again. And those prophecies were hundreds of years old, and yet Israel was not free. The captivity had ended. The Babylonian captivity was over. Syrian, that was over. They were back in their homeland, but they weren't free. Instead, they were ruled by a succession of empires. First Assyria, then there's Babylon, then comes the Persians, and after that, there are the Greeks, and then the Seleucids, and then at the present time, Rome was ruling them, so they weren't free. And the oppression of Israel kept going on and on and on, and it was relentless. And so now they hear Jesus saying that the temple will be destroyed, and so that must be a signal that the end is coming. If the temple is destroyed, the end must be near. And their understanding, they've been taught that there was a serious time of tribulation that was coming. They expected that. And so when Jesus started talking about desolation, then that must mean that the end times are upon them. That's a signal of the end. And that wasn't 
just what they read in the Old Testament. Do you remember those commentaries? Commentaries said the same thing. Now, sometimes people believe commentaries more than they believe what's written in the Scriptures. For example, there are some people that read books like the Left Behind series, and they think that those books know more about the end than the Bible does. Now, I've told you this before, but I was teaching on Revelation, and there was a person who said to me afterwards, what you said is not true. And I said, what do you mean what I said is not true? And this person said, that's not what it says in Left Behind. So I, I suppose we chuck the Bible for Left Behind? Well, I think we, we know where we need to go to find out about this. Well, the Jews had those kind of books too, and they predicted there was a time of tribulation. And so when the disciples heard about this, they said, well, everything's right on schedule. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, and they said that fits. And they expected it would happen fast, and they were excited about it. And so you see, this could have been the most hopeful time they had in the three years that they'd been with Jesus. Now, thirdly, and perhaps most important, was the expectation of the beginning of the kingdom. Now, that's what all the questions are about. That's the main thing that they're hoping for, that the kingdom of God has come, and Israel would be back on top, back to the glory days of David and Solomon. And in those times, Israel had extended its kingdom to encompass a much larger portion of the world than was originally given to them in the Old Testament, in the land of Canaan. So the kingdom had been expanded. And so they knew that when this new kingdom came, that it would equal or exceed that kingdom that had been given to David and to Solomon. And again, there were Old Testament prophecies that told about that. Uh, going back to David and Solomon, there was a prophecy that said that there was one who would sit on the throne of David and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. Second Samuel 7.16 tells us that Nathan the prophet told these words to David, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, when Nathan said that, David was dying, and there's a promise here that his kingdom would continue forever. And we know that's not talking about Solomon. Couldn't be Solomon, because Solomon was not immortal. There is one who is immortal that would sit on the throne, and that's what makes it an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah shed more light on that in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, which we know as the Old Testament Christmas prophecy. This is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now who is that immortal person that will sit on the throne? The everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, and that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you go on reading in Isaiah, and you come to chapters 40 through 66, and it's all about this great kingdom. Jeremiah wrote about it. Daniel wrote about it. Ezekiel wrote of it. Zechariah wrote of it. And so you have all of these Old Testament prophecies that are about this supernatural kingdom. But what we need to understand 
is the prophet's view of the timing of that kingdom. Let me read to you something that Paul wrote in the New Testament. This was at the end of Romans. He said, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. There is a mystery that's revealed in the New Testament that wasn't known by the prophets. This is a hidden mystery. In other words, there weren't any prophets that knew about this mystery that Paul was about to reveal. In the Old Testament, there was nobody that understood it. The prophets didn't understand it. And that mystery was how the Gentiles would be brought into the covenant of grace and they would be made one body with the Jews. And do you know what that one body is? That's right, it's the church. The one body is the church, and they didn't know about the church, and they didn't know about this long age that's now been going on for 2,000 years. So they didn't see the church in history, and so their eschatology simply didn't account for it. And so when they looked at the future, and, and, they, and they looked at the prophecies concerning the Messiah, they didn't see the Messiah coming, and then going away, and then coming again. They only saw one advent of Christ. And so the church age was completely hidden from their view. And so their prophecies are compressed. And when the Messiah came, they thought the kingdom was ready to begin. Now let me show you how that the disciples' view of that very same thing is reflected in verse number 3 of our text. In the end of the verse it says, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Now, when you and I read that and we see this term coming, we automatically think second coming. See, so we, we, we understand more than the disciples did because when they said coming, they weren't talking about second coming. Christ was there, and that's all the coming that there would be. Now, the word that's used here is the word parousia. And at this point in the scriptures, this word had not taken on its expanded meaning as Paul and others used it to refer to what they taught the church concerning the second coming of Christ. Here the word simply means his presence, not coming as in coming back. And that's part of the problem of translating from a foreign language. We just don't see all the nuances that are in the meaning of the, in, in the English text. And so the disciples were asking this question, what is the sign of your full presence with us? And they meant immediately, what is the sign of your full presence when you, who don't look very much like a king, will actually be the glorious king? Now later, after the resurrection and the ascension, the apostles would use that same word, and then they understood that it meant the full presence of Christ when he returns in power and glory. In other words, the second coming. That's when they really understood it. But at this point, they don't know anything about the second coming. Here, it's the full expectation that Christ was ready to begin his kingdom. So when Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed... They were hyped up about that, and they were excited about that. Finally, it was about to happen, and all the predictions are now falling into place. Everything is working as it should, and that's their impression in their eschatological plan. So how was it working? What were they actually looking at in the Bible that, that led them to believe that the kingdom was right now upon them? Well, let's take a look at that for a minute. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and starting in Isaiah 40, it's almost like 
opening up the New Testament and stepping right into the time of Jesus, even though it was written 700 years before. Now, all that the apostles had to read was the Old Testament Scripture. And Isaiah begins in chapter 40 with the ministry of a forerunner. Now, if you look at verse number 3 in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Now, I want you to stay right there, and I want you to look at that scripture, and let me read to you from Matthew chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, that is Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In Luke 3, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So what do you think that the disciples thought when they saw John the Baptist? Well, they said, here's the forerunner. Here's the one that Isaiah spoke of. Someone is going to come and announce the Messiah. And sure enough, there was John the Baptist. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He said that when he saw Jesus. Now, if we look back at Isaiah, John the Baptist is prophesied and what happens next? Well, just as soon as you get through that passage on the forerunner, you read just a little bit more, and you come to verse number 10, and it says, Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. So there you see the rule of a king, and then you go on reading in the passage, and you see the greatness of God, and you see a full kingdom that blossoms in the passage right up next to the coming of John the Baptist. And so when you look in Isaiah where it said every mountain shall be filled and uh, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places made smooth, that is talking about the millennial kingdom that Christ is going to establish upon the earth. And so when the disciples saw this, they saw the forerunner and they see right up next to that the predictions of the kingdom, what do they think? They see the forerunner. He comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He came like Isaiah said, and he announced the Messiah. And there is Jesus who had spent three years with the disciples doing what no man could ever do. He was a supernatural person that appears, and he's the one that's going to sit on the throne of David. And it just looks like everything is fitting into place. According to Isaiah and all of the other prophets, here's the forerunner, here is the Messiah, and so what must be next? It must be the kingdom. And so they asked Jesus, what is the sign of your full presence with us? And he meant the full presence of majesty with him sitting on the throne. Now do you see what's missing in all of this? In the Old Testament, there is no prediction of this long, long time that's called the church age. The order is forerunner, Messiah, kingdom. Nothing at all about the church age. And that's why Paul says this is a mystery that was kept 
secret. And we don't learn about it until we get into the New Testament. So this is what they expected. This is their impression of eschatology. That's the background for their questions. So to them, everything's falling into place. The the, the temple would be destroyed, and it would pave the way for a new temple that you read about in the book of Ezekiel. And so that means the oppression is about to be over. A time of tribulation will come, and it will go. The forerunner has come, and Jesus is here with the record of his countless miracles. He has power over nature. He has power over the demons. He has power over death. And so what do you expect they think? Here we are, boys. The kingdom is about to begin, and Jesus has told us that we are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel. And I'm telling you, they had to be the most excited they were, ever, had ever been. In three years of following Jesus, this has to be the most glorious time for them because all the time they followed him, there was no money, there was no power, there were no fine palaces, and worst of all, they didn't have any respect. And so they thought it's about to change. The temple is going to be destroyed. And that means to them that glory is coming. And so they ask, when will these things be? And I can tell you that the long answer that Jesus gave, spanning two chapters here, is not what they expected. Not at all what they expected. And they wouldn't understand all of this until after his death. And when the Holy Spirit came after at Pentecost, then he began to recall all the teachings of Jesus to their mind, and these pieces of the puzzle started to come together. But at this time, they were talking about the pieces of the puzzle just don't seem to fit with the death of Messiah, and especially not with the ignominious death of the cross. Now, for those of you that struggle with the word ignominious, ignominious, as my wife sometimes complains to me about, it means shame and disgrace. Shame and disgrace do not fit in with their plans. The Messiah can't be killed and certainly not killed on a cross. Well, they understood it later. Christ arose from the dead and he went back to heaven. And that was when the hope of the second coming gripped them. And they believed in the second coming of Christ so strongly that it gave them the strength to face perilous times. And so when Jesus takes off in in verse number 4, in the Olivet Discourse, he's preparing them not to be deceived. And what doesn't he want them to be deceived about? That the temple being destroyed is a sign that the kingdom is about to begin. Now, I'm going to explain that to you next week, I think, because the very thing that Jesus seeks to avoid is the things that people believe today. They think that this is something that refers to the past. But we're not, we're going to see. This is not something in the past. Not at all. And so the disciples are going to learn about this. That, that, that temples, the destruction of the temple is not a sign that the, of an immediate kingdom. And they would learn about the church age. And Jesus would show them that the time was not yet. And so when we get into the next section, we're going to be able to uh, look at that. And we're not going to be able to compare it to anything that we've seen yet. And again, people say, oh, that happened in the past. All these things were fulfilled in the past. And so now we're living in a spiritual kingdom, and that's all the kingdom that we're going to get. And so some people teach that there will be no reign of Christ upon the earth. And then neither will we be taken in by these kinds of mistakes that an earthquake in Chile or a typhoon in the Philippines is an indication that Christ is ready to come back now. We won't be fooled into thinking that. 
These are about things we haven't seen before. The rapidity of the calamities that will come and the intensity of them is like nothing that's ever been seen before. So we'll get into that, and I'll show you that Jesus is talking about a time coming, a time when the world is going to be plunged into seven years of unbridled total disaster. And then there's one other thing that I want to tell you. Jesus, well, maybe two things, so don't get excited. Jesus gave this prophecy to his disciples, but he's not speaking of something that they as a group would go through. When you see the Jews in the passage, that's a projection upon future Jews that would go through the time that he's speaking of. Now, you and I are not going to see these things. We're not going to see these intense, terrible times. That is, if you're saved, you're not going to see this. At least not from the vantage point of the world, because what Christ is going to do, he's going to return and take us out of the world, and then we'll see it from a different vantage point, and that's from heaven. And we're going to wait until we get down to verse number 27 in this chapter, and we're going to be the ones that Enoch prophesied about that will come with Christ and an army of saints and with angels and will come and execute judgment upon the earth. And then we will rule and reign with Christ in a literal kingdom, the very one that the disciples hoped for. Now let me quickly qualify the we. We will rule and reign with Christ. That we is believers in Christ. If you've not trusted in Christ, you're not in the we. And so it's important for us to study this so I can tell you that if you're not in the we, then you don't have any guarantee that you will escape these terrible times. There is no guarantee of safety for you. You stand in jeopardy every hour until you come to Christ in repentance and faith. Well, finally, the ecstasy of the disciples turned into agony because Christ died. And all their hopes were shattered. Jesus met two of them on the road to Emmaus after he arose from the dead. And they didn't recognize who he was. And so he asked them what they were so intensely discussing. And they said to him, well, haven't you heard? that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, and he's the one that we hoped should deliver Israel. And then the Bible says that Jesus, beginning at Moses and the prophets, just dug out all those prophecies concerning him, and he filled in all the missing blanks. Their eyes were opened, and he vanished out of their sight. So they went from ecstasy to agony, and back to ecstasy again. Jesus said that he's coming back. And he left that hope with them. And folks, that hope is what they used to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they hadn't believed this, and if they didn't have the strong hope that Christ would come again, there's none of us that would be sitting in this room today because we would never know about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. The disciples carried the message because they had the hope that Jesus is coming again. And I just want to ask you, do you have that hope? Do you actually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because that is included in his gospel. He came and he died to save us from our sins, and he promised that he is coming back to receive us unto himself. That's the great hope that we have. The Bible calls that the blessed hope. And I hope that you have that hope. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We spent a lot of time here discussing how these questions came about, and they really don't make a whole lot of sense to us until we understand what they had in their minds, what the disciples were thinking about, and why they would ask such questions. But we're thankful that they did, because now we have so much of a better understanding of what's going to happen when the end comes. And we are thankful for this, Lord, that you have promised that you are going to deliver us from this wrath that is coming, that we are not going to have to go through the terrible times that you'll soon discuss with them in this next part of the passage. We're thankful for that. So, Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would realize there is no hope without the gospel. There's no hope without believing what Jesus did for us and dying for our sins and paying the redemption price of our souls. Turn someone's heart to you today, Lord. I just pray that you would and draw all Christians closer to you in that hope that Jesus is coming again. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.